Hello and welcome to Reasonable Disagreements, a Hoover Institution podcast on law and policy. My name is Adam White. I'm a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, and I'm joined, as always, by Richard Epstein, a professor of law at New York University and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. Richard, how are you? I'm fine, well, uh, Rich- given the circumstances. Yeah, well, that's right, Richard. We tape these podcasts every couple of weeks, and it feels each time like a thousand years has passed since the last one. Uh, as we record this, it's just days after President Trump accepted the resignation, as they put it, of Jeff Sessions as attorney general. Uh, and President Trump designated the Department of Justice's chief of staff, Matthew Whitaker, to serve as acting attorney general uh, in Sessions' absence. And obviously, this temporary appointment has immense ramifications, not just in terms of the leadership of the Justice Department in general, but also in terms of oversight of the Mueller investigation, uh, because now that the recused attorney general Sessions is gone, the unrecused acting attorney general, Matthew Whitaker, can now directly manage the Mueller investigation instead of Rod Rosenstein. So, Richard, what's your assessment of everything so far? Well, I think it's the usual situation where the president always has a point and manages to find the worst possible way to put it into effect. Uh, The first point is why on earth would you decide to ask your uh, attorney general to walk the plank the day after the election? It makes it look completely politically cynical. He was afraid to do this before the election because he thought that it would have a real backlash against his candidates, particularly in the Senate. But the day after it, now he's prepared to go forward. So I think what happens is this actually taints the entire process before you actually start to look at anything having to do with Whitaker on the one hand or Sessions on the other hand. And secondly, I think what it does is it shows the president as a kind of a petty uh, tyrant. Uh, There's somebody who stands up to him in one way or another and he cannot abide that person. So he waits for the first possible moment in which to destroy him. I think there were many things that Sessions did that I take strong disagreement with on immigration and on drugs, for example. Uh, But I think he tried to serve honorably and it is sort of a touching irony that all the people who were out for his scalper a month ago are now determined to see him stay in office, which is not going to happen. And and I just don't think that that's appropriate. Uh, Then when you come to the next appointment, uh, what you really have to do is to recognize that the taint problem exists. I have no independent knowledge of Mr. Whitaker. I know he has a very strong public recommendation, but he has criticized, as have I, uh, the Mueller investigation. The big difference is... uh, Neither me, neither I, nor you, Adam, are going to be chosen to head this investigation. So we could take shots. But uh, this is politically an absolute powder keg. And to put in charge of this somebody who was suspected from the outside of being skewed one way or the other raises the same kind of legitimacy questions that you had um, with Sessions. Sessions, I thought, was honorable and probably correct when he recused himself from this thing. Um, Whitaker is going to be under immense pressure in order to recuse himself as well, at which point we get the status quo ante. Uh, So my view is that politically this thing was just a huge blunder on the part of the president, one that he's likely to make whenever he thinks his own honor is at stake. And he probably should pull the nomination and start over. Uh, Obviously, he's not going to make the deputy attorney general Rosenstein the attorney general. Next in command is Noel Francisco, a former student of mine and an admirable individual who has, I think, a very high profile and recognition in Washington and a high approval rating. Uh, My guess is you would go with him or maybe somebody else in the department who already has gone through Senate confirmation so as to avoid all the other complications that seem to be cropping up on poor Mr. Whitaker uh, two days after he's been named by the president. Well, now, I don't blame uh, President Trump so much for picking this moment to get rid of Sessions. Um, The midterm 
election is always a, a natural moment to reshuffle the, the cabinet deck. And I suspect Sessions isn't, won't be the last uh, high-level official to leave in coming weeks. I think back to the first midterm election for President George W. Bush, um, almost immediately after the election, you know, days, weeks, um, he fired his top economic advisors. I think that was in December, barely a month after the election. Uh, sometimes the midterm is just a natural, natural point for changing things up. Uh, now, it's in, it is interesting, by the way, that Sessions' resignation letter was undated. Uh, who knows how long it was on file uh, before this. But I, I don't blame Trump for getting, getting rid of him when he did. But like you, it's hard to imagine a less effective way to accomplish what President Trump is trying to accomplish, either if you take it in the best possible light or the worst possible light. In the best possible light, if President Trump thought that he just lost faith in Attorney General Sessions, not just on the Mueller investigation, but in his general operation of the Justice Department, um, getting rid of Sessions right after the election and replacing him with a controversial figure like Mr. Whitaker, we can get back to him later, um, replacing him so quickly with, with Mr. Whitaker rather than the much more well-known and I think uh, more prominent and, and more respected uh, Solicitor General Francisco raised a lot of questions about just exactly what it was President Trump was trying to accomplish with this temporary appointment. And if you take the much more cynical view that this really is all about replacing the um, the, the head of the, the Justice Department, the management of the Mueller, for purposes of the manage, management of the Mueller investigation, um, then I think it looks even worse um, to take somebody who has been such a prominent critic of Mueller, um, first on CNN, where Mr. Whitaker was a contributor, um, you know, speaking out against the ways in which a Justice Department might uh, strangle out the Mueller investigation to now put him in charge of that investigation, I think undermines any l- last remaining lingering credibility that President Trump might have in replacing Attorney General Sessions. So it seems like they've really shot themselves in the foot this time. In the head, I think is perhaps a better way. Look, I do well, disagree with you on the timing for this reason. Um, there's haste and there's undue haste. Um, you mentioned George W. Bush replacing people in December. That's four weeks after. This was four seconds after. This is a guy who's panting desperately in order to remove this man from office, and it's just an unseemly kind of behavior. If he had waited four weeks and something or other, I don't think we would have had this problem back in December. Uh, but it's the rapid turn of events that terrible point on the selection stuff. It's really kind of frightening because what it does, sadly, and I would say this, is it gives more legitimacy to the Mueller legis- you know, investigation than it deserves. My view has been it's a bus from beginning to end. Um, he still has yet to come up with anything serious that links Trump to the Russia uh, campaign influence situation. But now, uh, since he's attacking him, he's turned the man into a sort of a, a, a huge martyr, a, a figure who stands at the gates of hell to make sure that no improper things start to take place. My view is Mueller's position today is stronger than it was three days ago by virtue of what it was that the president has done. This man acts in anger. He acts on impulse. He has no particular kind of political judgment. Uh, he's an unguided missile. And we're now seeing this one blow up right off the launching pad. Well, Richard, let me try one more then. Forget about 2002 and Larry Lindsay and, and Paul O'Neill. Uh, think about 2006, the day after President Bush, uh, as he put it, took a thumping in the midterm elections. Congress went back to the Democrats. The day after that was the day that uh, 
Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld stepped down. In some ways, Rumsfeld might be a more analogous figure to Sessions. Obviously, by 2006, he was deeply embattled politically. He was at odds with parts of the administration over significant policies, namely uh, the, uh, the prosecution of the war in Iraq. Uh, it was the day after the election that President Bush decided that it was time to wipe the slate clean. Now, of course, President Bush then took a much different approach to replacing Rumsfeld. If I, if I remember correctly, it was Robert Gates, who was then the next Secretary of Defense, a much more uh, well-known and respected figure. Um, but, but still, I, I don't know. I think the day after the election is a perfectly good time for a house cleaning. Uh, in this case, though, it's not clear that they actually are cleaning the house. But but on on Mr. Whitaker, you know, it's funny. He's from Iowa, so he had definitely, in my book, he has that in his favor. And 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 he was U.S. Attorney for for, for the Southern District of Iowa. I mean, he's a a respected prosecutor in that sense. But obviously, since then, his career has taken a few turns. Um, in in part, uh, his his work on TV. Um, which some say he was campaigning for a job in the Justice Department. And it was a successful campaign. Um, but his own statements on the record, both about the Mueller investigation, his statements when he ran for the, for the United States Senate, his statements on, on opposing Marbury versus Madison, um, this just seems in many respects like uh, a good uh, justice, De- even a good Justice Department chief of staff might be sort of in beyond his depth and suddenly being thrown into the spotlight as attorney general. In some ways, I, I almost feel bad for him. Um, for 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 the, the the punishment he's about to take in the the public arena over his record, but on the other hand, it's just incomprehensible to me that President Trump wouldn't name somebody like Noel Francisco as the acting attorney general. I'm going to go back and talk about the Rumsfeld thing for a second, and, and I think it's important to understand the difference between those two cases. Rumsfeld essentially was leading a disastrous foreign policy um, with respect to everything that had taken place in Iraq, and it was clear that he had to go. Uh, but when Bush got rid of him, he didn't get rid of him in order to protect his own position as the president. And, and what Trump is doing is he said to Sessions, you didn't protect me in much. Uh, so his own political survival, self-interest, and constitutional legitimacy was at stake in the way in which it was never done with respect to George Bush. There's there's also, I think, something else involved. Uh, The situation was deteriorating very rapidly in Iraq at that particular time. And, you know, you wait a couple of months there, it really makes some kind of difference. As far as I can tell, there's nothing that Sessions did as Attorney General, apart from his lack of oversight of the Mueller investigation, uh, that calls for any sort of change. In fact, some of the things he did, I think, were genuinely cleaning house. Uh, uh, The way in which he would stop trying to give special favors to various people in one kind of project or another, um, I think was an effort to uh, make sure that influence didn't take its inf- take an undue place in the operation of the department. And I think for those things, he should be praised. But uh, this is the difference about the two of them is George Bush was attacked for many things, uh, but nobody but nobody thought that he was trying to protect himself from investigations. And with Trump, the political is only the personal. And therein lies a great tragedy. I mean, I say this over and over again. As a classical liberal who agrees with many of the substantive decisions that the president has made, nothing is a greater burden than defending those presidents than to have to deal with the fact that the president of the United States has supported them by arguments that are simply not credible. Uh, We're not going to have time perhaps to talk about it, but his stuff on the birthright citizenship um, is a classic illustration of somebody who just goes over the top for no particular reason, understanding nothing about the particular problem, 
And then when you try to give a more rational argument on the same side, uh, you're tainted. So I have this very uneasy, unhappy feeling about the president. I think he's a giant cloud over the kinds of substantive positions that I take interest in. And I just don't know how it is that one could get him to keep quiet. And the other thing I would ask, Adam, you will know this better because you're closer to Washington than I do. Whose advice did he take, if anybody, uh, when he decided to go for Whitaker? You know, I don't have the foggiest idea about that. It, Whitaker's name was bubbling up in recent months as a possible successor to uh, to Attorney General Sessions, even just on an acting basis. I think it was it was reported that Whitaker was much closer to the White House on uh, on on issues of of immigration policy and the Mueller investigation, and and that and that he had earned the White House's trust, you know, weeks and months ago. But where this actually came from, we'll never know. But let's talk a little bit about the circumstances of his appointment. I mean, the, there's a big, a big debate right now, or an increasingly large debate about the constitutional issue. But before we even get to that, Richard, just a sort of a nuanced issue that that I find interesting that's already been sort of overshadowed. Um, under the the Vacancies Reform Act, President Trump has real latitude to uh, to make temporary um, appointments or acting appointments. Uh, for vacancies that are caused by resignations. Uh, but he's much more limited in what he can do when he fires people, for obvious reasons, right? You don't want a president taking advantage of a Vacancies Reform Act by just simply firing people. Now, in this case, Sessions, he, he phrased his resignation letter in a very interesting way. I don't have the exact words in front of me, but if I remember correctly, Sessions says, um, you know, sub- pursuant to your request, I'm submitting my resignation. And so, Richard, I'm just curious if the Vacancies Reform Act allows the president to make these acting appointments for resignations but not firings, uh, to what extent do you think there's a live legal issue over a resignation that really was sort of a, a forced resignation or a constructive eviction out of the Justice Department? Do you think if this would come to the courts, the courts should look sort of behind the veil of this resignation and get to the circumstances of it to decide whether Sessions really did resign or whether he was fired? I don't even think this is a close case. Of course he was fired. Um, what the president did is had this letter in hand. The president made it very clear that he was going to get rid of Sessions at the first opportunity. And so what he does is he puts a gun to his head and says, I'll kill you unless you jump. And then Sessions jumps. Um, I think the coercion absolutely concludes this thing. And I think the point that you make that uh, when you start looking about uh, vacancies that are left by resignation, uh, you have to examine, quote, the circumstances. But there's nothing hidden about this. So to take uh, the contrast, the most conspicuous illustration we had of that was Richard Cordray. When he resigns, nobody thought he was being pushed by President Trump. People realized that he was under some kind of political pressure, but he wanted to run for governor in the state of Ohio, which furnishes an external and independent justification for why it is that he went. Uh, Sessions would have kept his job for a very long time if the president said a single nice thing about him, uh, which he had never done. So uh, given the endless torrent of abuse and, and deprecation that was involved in this case. I think you have to treat it as though he was fired. And if that's going to limit the president's hand under the vacancy um, act, then it seems to me so be it. Uh, I, he obviously has to be able to appoint somebody after he fires somebody. Uh, but again, given the incredible form of political overreach that he engaged in, the last thing he wants to do is to put forward somebody who sounds like a crony. I mean, the more we talk at Adam, the more I become utterly stunned at how utterly 
internally referential the president is. It's generally said that the man doesn't know how to take advice, and that seems to be surely the case here. He's got so many more important things to worry about, including re-election. And what this is going to do is exactly what he doesn't need to have. It's going to take all the rule of law conservative Republicans and put them on the opposite side of this issue. And for a guy who's not been able to expand this base, why he would want to crack it in half going forward is a complete mystery for me. I mean, you know, I think the person who probably ought to resign is Donald Trump, uh, but I really don't see that happening in the short run. Well, you know, it's, it's hard to follow up that blockbuster of a statement, but I, I will say I went back to, to the, the text of the Vacancies uh, Act, and it does say that the president can make these active appointments when a, a Senate-confirmed officer uh, dies, resigns, or is otherwise unable to perform the functions and duties of the office. So it, a firing doesn't count. Um, it really has to be a resignation. But I'm just, I raise this only because it strikes me as one of those issues where you and I really do differ in our, our assessment of the role of the courts. You know, it's, it's not hard for me to look at this and say, okay, Sessions was effectively fired, but he turned in a resignation letter. Uh, he characterized it as a resignation. And I'm wary of the courts sort of looking behind that and, and giving rise to litigation where you might have discovery into what actually motivated a resignation and so on. This seems to be one of those where even where it seems pretty clear that Sessions was probably effectively fired, um, I, I don't think there's a there's a legal issue there, but I thought you might. Um, I think it is, but that you actually asked the question. I wasn't even thinking in terms of judicial enforcement. I was just okay. asking the rhetorical question of whether he was or was not fired. And you know, one of the things that you raise, I think, which is directly important about this and why Trump gets to be so destructive so often, is what we do is we have a whole series of social norms and customs, the rules of comedy and so forth, which means that we can kind of resolve these questions short of having to go to court. And in this particular case, what happens is the president – exerts maximal pressure on this, calls it a resignation, dares somebody to sue him. And, you know, just think of what a litigation would start to look like. He starts to take office. Who's going to have standing to sue him for assuming the office? Somebody in the Justice Department, not on your life. Any ordinary citizen, not going to happen. So then what you're going to have to do is he's going to have to start to bring a direct action against somebody. That person will say, this action is invalid and we'll be in the kind of Noel Canning state of the world in which we have a charge that a board or in this case an individual is in properly put into office in one of these places. It takes several years to, to, to resolve, as you say. Uh, so the whole thing is a litigation strategy is madness, which is exactly why uh, when you have people, you want them to understand that these sort of comedy rules are not just questions of etiquette. Uh, they really are essential for the way in which government can work and to function. And so when you start to see a president gratuitously pick a fight like this, and the irony is, if you put in somebody like Noel Francisco, who gives this thing a very close look, he may well come to the following conclusion. I'm not going to fire Mr. Sessions, but Mr. Sessions, you've been doing this for 18 months, Scott. Uh, what I would like to do is to have you submit to be a public report to explain or report even privately 
to why it is that this investigation cannot be closed by February 1st, 2019. Um, that's all you need to do, I think, in order to get this going. So this is another illustration of what I regard as a colossal Trump blunder, which is not just a political blunder for him, but it puts so much attack and so much pressure on all sensible sorts of social institutions and legal accommodations that it makes it very hard for anybody else to do something in a correct fashion. So he's handed the Democrats a great victory under these circumstances, one I dare say that they don't deserve. Now, our listeners have already heard me go on and on at length in prior podcasts of my view of of, of President Trump and norms, and so I won't repeat them all here. Um, I do have a piece out this week on the new website of the Claremont Institute, it's called The American Mind, where they invited me to respond to Charles Kessler's defense of President Trump's approach to governance, and I have a pretty pretty uh, uh, starkly critical assessment of President Trump uh, on, in that publication. The, Tell and then, me more. Well, it's called, it's, it's a, Charles Kessler in his essay, he asked the question, well, what is a bad man for purposes of the Constitution and, and the structure of government? How should we think of, of good or bad leaders? And then I, I walked through my assessment. Well, here's a few examples of what might make a, a bad man for constitutional purposes. What is, uh, you know, in, term, in terms of, as I call them, Republican virtues. And so my, the point of this essay, I won't get into it, is that it's true that we have a constitution that's built for men who aren't angels. Um, but at the same time, the constitution, as, as the Federalist makes clear over and over again, the key to the constitution isn't just its structural provisions. It's the Republican virtues that allow that machinery to work. And as, as, as Madison said in Federalist 55, our form of government actually presupposes the existence of, of – of, it depends on the existence of – those virtues more than any other form of government. And so that's the point of the essay, if, if readers are interested in it. But one other thing that you sort of strike on, I have to, I have to point out, since I, I'm taping this today from my office at George Mason University Scalia Law School, you know, I direct a program called the Seaboy and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. And on December 7th, we're going to have an entire conference Richard, you keynoted our last of the, or our, our penultimate of these conferences, but our December seventh conference is on a subject we're calling it "New Normals?" Question uh, mark. New Normals: the the Trump administration, the courts, and administrative law. And we have a series of panel discussions on some of the interesting um, emerging issues that are arising in litigation surrounding this particular administration, raising questions about the extent to which President Trump is sort of creating new problems and the extent to which uh, district courts and other parts of our government are creating new problems in the way that they react to President Trump. So that'll be on December 7th here in Arlington, Virginia, across the Potomac River from Washington, D.C. So I hope our lo- local listeners uh, know about it. But, Richard, one other what? thing, since you touched on the Mueller investigation, yeah, um, and we can get back to the question about Whitaker's appointment, but another small issue that's worth considering um, Whitaker has a pre existing relationship with one of the witnesses in the grand jury investigation, Sam Clovis. An advisor to president, outside advisor to President Trump, Whitaker worked. Um, I think he might have chaired a, a, a committee, a campaign committee um, for Mr. Clovis, um, or he chaired a political committee for Mr. Clovis. So he has this pre-existing relationship. So it's worth asking: Is Whitaker himself now required to recuse from overseeing the Mueller investigation since he has a relationship with one of the main witnesses? 
Well, I hope he is, and then that would give the same problem with respect to Robert Mueller, given the fact that uh, it may well be that James Comey is somebody who's involved in this case and so forth. But I, I, before I answer that, I want to get back to your constitutional point. Oh, um, sure. And I, I think you're absolutely right about this. We have this famous sentence in Federalist 10, probably the only thing I ever remember, um, which says enlightened statesmen will not always be at the helm. Uh, right. But it's really important to understand that when you're dealing with a president of the United States, and this guy is trouble. Uh, you now have to have every institution in government lined against him in order to keep him under control, and that's just not going to happen under this fractured sort of political uh, sorts of environment. And it makes things infinitely more difficult to work. And of course, the whole point of trying to get somebody who comes up through the system is that they're aware of these social norms and they understand what kinds of faux pas are really going to be disastrous. And the president takes obvious pleasure in the fact that if there's a norm that happens to inconvenience him, are uh, better that he should violate it than not. On the other point about this conflict of interest, I have always thought that Mueller should never have been appointed in the first place. It's clearly water over the dam at this particular point, uh, but he was very close to Rosenstein, very close to Comey, very close to all the internal operations inside the Attorney General's office, given his position in the FBI, and, and that seems to me to be, again, just a bad judgment. So let's go through the arguments as to why you don't want to appoint Whitaker. It's because there are hundreds of other people who can do this job or doesn't, um, who don't have the conflicts, why do you want to invite trouble? Well, there are lots of other people who could run investigations uh, involving Russia or something else. In fact, all of Washington, D.C. is repeat with law firms who essentially specialize in exactly this kind of work and somebody there would have had either the independence and the intelligence to be able to do it, so why court trouble? And I thought that the Rosenstein decision, I guess it was his, to appoint Mueller was just a colossal mistake in judgment, which disqualifies him as well. So I'm in this odd position now of defending people in their particular office against Mr. Whitaker, whom I don't think ought to be there at all. Uh, but they, he can't get rid of them. I think if you had an independent person who looked at this, uh, the conflict of interest question could then be fairly raised. And it is ironic, this conflict that I'm talking about is probably more acute than the one that uh, you spoke about with respect to Whitaker. But I don't think he should accept this appointment. I think he should step down. And then, as I've indicated to you, uh, there is not just a, 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 an on-off switch which says either we fire Mueller or we let him do exactly what he wants. There's a way of exerting interest intermediate levels of control that might actually bring this thing to a responsible end. And what's happened is Trump has reduced the probabilities of that ever happening. Well, with the time we have left, let's let's talk about this constitutional issue that we've we've been alluding to but never really grabbing onto. It's the question that was raised in the New York Times op-ed by former uh, Deputy Solicitor General Neil Kochal, Deputy Solicitor General in the Obama administration, I mean, and uh, George Conway, a conservative lawyer who happens to be married to Kellyanne Conway, the president's communications uh, director, um, or, or sorry, not communications director, but, but po political advisor. Um, Kochal and Conway argue that uh, it's actually unconstitutional to make Whitaker the acting attorney general because under title sorry under article 2 of the constitution uh, a principal office can only be filled either by the president with uh, the senate's advice and consent or with a constitutional recess appointment uh, and neither of these happen in this case it's an argument that i have to admit i hadn't occurred to me previously um and i'm not sure completely what i make of it yet since this op-ed 
just raised the issue just a couple of days ago. Um, but it's an interesting argument. Uh, Richard, do you have any views on this so far? Look, I mean, when you start looking at the appointments clause, if this argument is correct, then exactly what happens to this office? You can't make any temporary appointment except from a list of people who presumably have already been confirmed for some other sorts of positions. And, you know, what I would have thought was that uh, the appointments clause is a bare skeleton. We know that the amount of litigation that takes place under it is inordinate um, and that this is a classic case in which you want to be very cherry uh, about making a kind of a statement that when the president has to point a person who's in direct contact with him, he's going to be limited on a temporary basis to those people who already have gotten Senate clearance, which seems to be the kind of thing that you're saying. Um, I would have thought that he had much more discretion on that. I agree that this is not a recess type of appointment, uh, but it does strike me as being a situation which is sufficiently important. And the way in which you're putting this argument, if I understand it correctly, and the way in which Katya and Conway are putting it, is this is not dependent upon on the fact that uh, uh, Sessions was de facto fired by Trump. This would apply if they were a perfectly voluntary organization. And so um, one of the things that you always like to talk about, which I think I acquiesce in, is there must be some level of constitutional practice on this particular point. And the fact that the argument is now made as a novel argument in the New York Times in response to this suggests that this has not been consistently followed earlier on. And so when you're dealing with one of the many, many gaps inside a constitution, and boy, this one certainly has it on the appointment stuff, it seems to me to be perfectly sensible to say uh, that he can appoint somebody who doesn't come within this sort of narrow class of individuals. Um, I haven't studied this point you know, really closely and so forth, um, but I would assume that he could make this kind of designation. Um, I don't think you have to wait for a recess to do it, and I don't think you certainly want to leave this office empty. You've got to have somebody as an acting attorney general, and you need to have somebody as an interim attorney general. Uh, so I would say it's probably not good, uh, but if it is good, then it means that the only people who could really appoint are people like Francisco's and other deputy attorney generals or assistant attorney generals who've already gone through the Senate confirmation process. So I'm a little bit puzzled by the argument, but taking it back, I'm not saying it's wrong because I really haven't considered it closely, but my presumption would be to show a little bit of skepticism toward it. Just a couple of caveats. The the argument that Katyal and Kanye are raising, it only pertains to what we call principal officers, right? Primarily the heads of agencies. The Constitution says that for inferior officers, Congress uh, can prescribe rules for the president or heads of departments of the courts to make uh, appointments to inferior offices. And I think the Vacancies Reform Act, as you apply it to, to, to inferior officers, people lower down the organizational chart in an agency, I don't think there's any constitutional question about that. It's just about these temporary appointments to the heads of the agencies. Now, you like you, uh, as you suggested, you know, I did think about, well, what's the practice on this? And I was just last night clicking around a little bit, trying to find examples where people without Senate confirmation were named as the acting heads of agencies. Because obviously this actually comes up a lot in the transition period between one administration and another, where suddenly you have all agencies, um, you know, if only briefly, run by acting officers. And it's not clear to me yet how much of a practice there's been of appointing people without Senate confirmation to the the, the tops of agencies. Um, now, in terms of the limits this this argument would put on a president, 
I don't know how much of a limit it actually would be. As you said, the president has a pretty broad array of people he could have chosen to lead um, the Justice Department, not just Senate-confirmed officers within the Justice Department like like um, Noel Francisco or everybody's favorite Rod Rosenstein. I was being a little sarcastic there. But also, but also he could have followed the example of what he did with the CFPB, right? He took uh, Mick Mulvaney, who was Senate-confirmed to lead the Office mm. of Management Budget, and temporarily put him there. You could see President Trump temporarily appointing, um, say, uh, Alex Azar, Alex Costa, somebody like that, to lead um, the Justice Department for this brief period until a, a, a new uh, permanent uh, attorney general um, can be confirmed. Um, but I don't know how much of a limit it actually places on the president, which is one of the reasons why um, I actually am open to this argument. Uh, but I have to admit, it never occurred to me. You know who else it never occurred to, it seems, is the, are all the people who argued just a year ago, almost exactly a year ago, that Leandra English, uh, Richard Cordray's uh, hand-chosen deputy director of the CFPB, should have been the rightful acting director of the CFPB. Remember the whole fight over the relationship yes. between Dodd-Frank and, and the Vacancies Reform Act? I remember a lot of people like Lawrence Tribe arguing that Dodd-Frank made Leandra English the deputy director or the acting director of the CFPB. Um, I don't recall any of them saying that she was she was actually uh, um, ineligible because she wasn't Senate confirmed. And now I see our friend Professor Tribe leading the charge against the Whitaker chamber uh, with Whitaker chamber, a Whitaker appointment on uh, on constitutional grounds. Um, so obviously um, there, as they say, hypocrisy is the tribute that, that that vice pays to virtue, and Professor Tribe is paying a pretty big tribute to virtue this week. Um, well, I, I'm going to again respond. You know, the idea that the way in which you solve this problem is take somebody who's the secretary of HHS or the Federal Communications Commission, who may not be at all suitable for this particular position, is the way you solve the problem. Um, that seems to me to be odd. Let's get rid of the Whitaker situation and find somebody else who's extraordinarily able, who knows what it is to be an attorney general, who has not been, in fact, confirmed. Would you want This argument would block that person as well. And you mentioned something about this being only for a short time. Well, you and I both know uh, that this confirmation battle with respect to a successor will become extremely complicated because the way in which Trump has positioned himself, he's broken off a lot of rule of law conservatives so that 5347 majority, assuming that's what the number is, um, is likely to sort of fall apart pretty quickly and we could have a kind of a standoff on this situation that nobody means. So, I mean, I... Let me put it this way. I'm puzzled by the argument. I agree that there's no authoritative uh, claim that could be made against it. If you ask me what I would do to fill this particular hole, I would say that the president has a pretty broad scope of people whom we could put in as a temporary capacity on this thing, even if we're not in recess appointment. And I don't think that that constraint is appropriate. And I think the real danger here is you're applying a constraint which not only applies to Mr. Whitaker, but applies to anybody else else whom he might appoint who doesn't have Senate confirmation. So uh, count me as skeptical. Um, there's a certain degree, I think you said, of delicious constitutional opportunism that takes place on this particular point. And so I'm in the position of hoping that the issue never arises because I think that Whitaker, if he had any sense, would withdraw. And I think if Trump had any success, he would basically encourage his withdrawal at this stage before the political damage gets too large. Well, even, even if, say, Whitaker uh, steps back 
from this acting appointment um, you know, this week, maybe even before uh, listeners get our podcast. Even if you were to do that and Noel Francisco were suddenly named the new acting attorney general, <laughs> there still would be a, a limit by law on how long he can serve in that capacity. The Vacancies Reform Act um, pro- prohibits these acting appointments to run for more than a year um, with limited exceptions. There's going to have to be a new nominated um, uh, attorney general. I see today the news is, well, maybe it'll be Chris Christie. Honestly, when you look at the names that are being floated publicly, Christie, Rudy Giuliani, Chris Kobach from Kansas, and Lindsey Graham, it seems to me increasingly clear that that Graham may be the only one that can actually get through Senate confirmation anytime soon. Giuliani and Kobach seem as as, as total non-starters. Chris Christie is going to have immense trouble of his own, although he might well get through. It seems the one with the clearest path to confirmation would be somebody like Lindsey Graham, who even if he doesn't want the job, may decide um, that, that, that the functioning of the Justice Department requires him to take one for the team and become the next attorney general. He's the only one of those four that I would support. I would oppose all the others. Chris Christie, one of the worst governors ever, and his behavior when he was the uh, attorney general or the assistant attorney general for the New Jersey district was amongst the worst you've ever seen. I mean, what is the president thinking about this? I mean, he really has to understand that if he wants to have any chance at reelection, he cannot engage in these wild partisan kinds of activities. That's a shocking list of individuals to put forward. Lindsey Graham is just fine, and then they'll have a grand deal in which Nikki Haley uh, will become the uh, senator from the state of South Carolina. And after the Democrats whomped the president in 2020, she will become a very credible Republican nominee in 2024. I hope I'm around to see it. Richard, what about you for attorney general? Well, I, I think the Age Requirement Act is going to probably take me out of the picture. Um, I, I do not conceive that, given my, my caustic remarks today, that I would be very high on a Trump list. It would be a great job to have, I would have to say, uh, for a relatively short period of time. Um, but I couldn't fire my boss, so I think that I would probably, if appointed, last somewhere between 24 and uh, 48 hours. Well, Richard, I think your confirmation hearing would have been one for the ages, so I'm sorry that we won't see it. But uh, oh, as I'd always- love that's the, I would rather have the hearing and then turn the job down than not have the hearing uh, because I would be fairly pointed at what my views are on these subjects, and I don't think I would get acclamation from either party. But it has been widely said, widely rumored that I could not get the support of a single person on either side of the Senate. And when I go to sleep at night, I rest a little bit better uh, thinking that that might actually be true. Well, if nothing else, Richard, it saves you uh, more time for podcasts. And as always, I enjoy our conversations. I think we probably it's time to bring this one uh, to a close. Uh, so on behalf of, of my, my, my colleague, Richard Epstein, and our friends at the Hoover Institution, thank you all for joining us. And we'll look forward to the next conversation. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.